0: Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. I'm a sports nutritionist and an exercise physiologist, and I'm a bodybuilder. You got the fortress,
1: Rob Fortney. I'm a former editor at MuscleMag International, former competitive bodybuilder and powerlifter.
2: That was very animated, Rob. This is Phil Stevens. I'm a Highland Games competitor, a powerlifter, and founder of LiftForHope.org, StrengthGuild.com. And every once in a while, I bleed profusely from my mouth, and we catch it on video. (laughs)
0: And you're a swimsuit model. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Oh, you know, yeah. One of the the little uh, promotional videos I've been playing with, it's the one with Phil in the, I don't know what it is, a singlet or some kind of socks or something. (laughs) 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 A man of many uh, pieces of attire. Oh, yeah. Anyway, anyway, uh, just a quick news blurb just to start off here. Strength and Muscle Sport News. The new web page is up. That's what Phil was alluding to. It's cleaner um, it's a little bit more uh, helpful, I think, to listeners. There's a a big uh, icon, it's sort of halfway down, two-thirds of the way down the page, where we're inviting people to submit their own audio. I mean, we have a lot of people who listen to the podcast. There's between seven and 8,000 people a month now listening. So, you know, you guys are trainers and coaches. Please send us something. It's very brief to do it. Uh, you can just click the icon. There's instructions on how to do that. Uh, but essentially it's like a public radio like NPR might do where they sort of, um, you know, just pen uh, in written form a 300 to 500 word editorial or comment, and then they just read it into their computer. Most computers have a sound recorder nowadays. So uh anyway, so there's that. There's the promotional video at the top. And yes, indeed, we have Phil being Gene Simmons there at the end. Um, <laughs> danger! <laughs> warning to everybody with the heavy, heavy rack poles. <laughs> yeah, they take um, their toll. But anyway, so the web, new web page is up. If anybody wanted, oh, check I thought it. I thought that was him getting up off the toilet.
2: Uh,
0: that happens. Now that that really does happen. Oh. Um,
2: <laughs> 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 That's not. <good. laughs> <sighs> Anyways, I was just going to say too on the the recording thing, let's just not get any of that stuff coming on there and telling us how you can, how people can gain 30 pounds of muscle in 13 days on your new program type of stuff. Quality, quality information people.
0: Right, Um, information, education, right, not something commercial. In fact, it's in the instructions if you click on it and you go down to the bottom of the, uh, you know, listener editorials page. It actually suggests some things, you know, quote a famous person or something happening in the news, maybe a recent study that you heard about, uh, or something you've seen in your practice, things like that. Not, yeah, not something commercial or, uh, or foolish because we're just going to edit that out if you do that kind of stuff.
2: <laughs> anyway. So we'll move on. Um, today we've got a special guest. Um, we, we hadn't given much love to the Highland Games athletes of late, so. I called up Larry, Brock, and, uh, Salafi to join us. So, Larry, thanks for joining us.
3: Hey, I'm glad to be here, guys.
2: Give everybody a little rundown. Larry is the 2010 IHGF World Champion and former U.S. Champ and British Heavyweight Champion in in Highland Games. Um, aside from his Highland Games, he's a husband and father of one. Went to Appalachian State University where he got his B.S. in physical education. Currently works at Western Harnett High School, I think it is, um, unless I'm yep, wrong. It. But in Lillington, North Carolina. Um, as far as Highland Games, you've been competing for 12 years, seven pro. You've won 62 games, and you're the American record holder in that 28-pound weight for distance.
3: Yeah, and. I've been awful lucky, man. I've been I've been awful blessed to be able to do this sport for such a long time, but it's, it's starting to take a toll on me.
2: Oh, I I, I, I can only imagine, and you're. You're also sponsored by a great company and a great soda, Iron Brew. Um,
3: oh, yeah. They're, they're oh, great. And that's great like stuff. orange crack. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. They make diet stuff, too, that isn't as good as crack, but it's pretty close. But, uh, How old are you, Larry? i a I'm, I just turned 32.
1: Okay. Ah, oh, you're still young, man. Yeah,
3: yeah. I'm still young, but I, I'm sitting here with an arm sling on my right arm after my second shoulder surgery of the year, oh. and that's my 10th surgery of my life. So my 32 is closer to 50 of a normal man, I believe, but uh, i <laughs> We, still deal, with right. yeah, we, we right. deal with this a lot. Yeah, we
2: deal with this a lot. You know, the people on this podcast generally have a lot more miles than their years.
0: That's it. It's the mileage. <laughs> we said it, right? Not the age. It's the mileage.
2: That's right. So let, let's talk about um,
3: your athletic background. How,
2: what what were you doing before you got into Island Games?
3: Well, you know, I started out like I guess like most people do, and I was a I was a football player. Yeah, the first the first organized thing I did was softball. I lived in Massachusetts for a couple years, and my parents thought Little league baseball was too competitive, so they signed me and my sister up for this softball league, which was a lot of fun. But as I, we only lived there for a couple years up north, and uh, we moved back down the south, and I started playing football when I was in the sixth grade. And uh, after that, I moved into middle school football, and I did baseball as well. And then I got to high school and continued fo- playing football, but baseball started taking a back seat because I started learning about shot and discus. And uh, I played football four years, and I did indoor shot and outdoor track, and uh, then progressed on into college. I was lucky enough to get a college scholarship to Appalachian State University, and I was allowed to do track and field there. So I actually did three sports in college, if you kind of look at it, because I I was on a football scholarship, and then I went straight to the indoor track team, and then I went right into outdoor track combined with spring ball and then right back into football. So college was a busy time for me. It was fun, but it was busy. But then college started winding down, and then I realized I wasn't going to be in the NFL. So I figured I could make a little money and keep competing in the Scottish games, and it's been been a blessing ever since. So how long, how long did it take
2: you before you went pro?
3: I started competing in the Highland Games in 1998. I did one game at Grandfather Mountain on, you know, just kind of a, someone said, why don't you get tried out? So I did one game in 98 and I did the same game again in 1999. And those are the only two games that I did, I've done, you know, one, once each year. So I really didn't start competing in the Highland Games until about 2000 on kind of a full-time practicing level. And then I turned professional in 2003. How did, well, I was only really competing two or three years.
1: How did you come to uh, be aware of the sport?
3: Well, when I was in high school, uh, you know, this is kind of a funny thing, my cousin, who's a big guy as well, he lives uh, down the farm on Fayetteville, he said, hey, why don't you give this stuff a try, It's highland game stuff. And I was doing football and track and field, and I had my heart set on throwing the discus in the Olympics, and I didn't have time for it. And he goes, well, look at all these medals. And, and I thought it was pretty cool, but I didn't really get into it. And then when I got to college... Uh, my track coach, her name is Meg Ritchie, and if any listeners know anything about shot and discus, she still holds the collegiate records in the shot and the discus for the females, and she's probably in her early 60s. So you're talking about a lady who is an unbelievable thrower for her time, and even today still holds the records. And she was from Scotland. Her name was Meg Ritchie, and um, two-time Olympian for the for U.K., and she said, why don't you give it a try? And I said, you know, I heard about it from my cousin. I'd love to. So I, brought, I called my cousin back, that evil little crow. I said, hey, can I borrow that kilt you had? And he said, yeah. So he let me borrow his kilt. And that's kind of how I got my start in the game. It's just me and another guy on the track team named Adam Gilbert. He was a hammer thrower. Um, we both went down. I got the video from my first game ever. It's hilarious how bad I was. But, um, you know, we went down and had a good time and, I had to go to work that night, and all I heard were bagpipes in my ears because Grandfather Mountain Highland Games is one of the biggest games in the world, and it's pretty—it's a pretty impressive sight. And that's kind of how I got my start.
1: Do you have to wear a
3: kilt? Yeah, yeah. You know, I've been in Scotland where it's funny because in America we're so much more traditionally as far as the guards and everything than they are in Scotland. To compete in every game that I know of in the U.S., you have to have a kilt. Um it's just kind of the thing, and you know, I just I knew that I couldn't compete with grandfather without a kilt, so I had to get one. I, you know, I was awful lucky that I knew someone because my friend Adam. His grandmother made him a makeshift kilt, and you know, he wore it, and everything was fine. Everybody's pretty good people. I mean, I eventually bought a real kilt, but um.
0: Well that, there, you know what? First. That begs the question. It, this is incredibly naive, but is there something special about Highland Games kilts, or or not really? They're just pretty much straight up Scottish kilts.
3: Well, i tell you what you can do. You know, like for me, I, I got started wearing a traditional kilt, and, you know, it's kind of heavy. And to me, that's I like tradition. I like the way things are. And, you know, there is no set kilt. I mean, I've seen guys come out with a tablecloth wrapped around them with a belt, and they competed. I mean, just something, a plaid tablecloth. You know, the guys, you'll notice the guys that stick around in the sport long enough will have two or three kilts. And there's a company out there called Sport Kilt that, you know, they make kilts. At a cheaper value they're not they're a good value kilt but they're not a traditional you know nine or ten yard kilt which is you know mine is a nine yard kilt you know pleated down to where it'll fit around my waist and so on, and it's uh, everything matches up and the, the sport kilts are coming along and they're really really nice but there's no set thing that's the great thing about the highland games is there's no set set thing but you know most games you have to wear a kilt
1: yeah you know just just for the uh Benefit of our listeners, I, I I've noticed you know over the years um, discussing these things, a lot of people um, are not quite sure of the differences between like Highland Games, Scottish Games, and and strongman stuff. Um, so, for the benefit of those listeners who are too um, up on these things, maybe you could describe to us uh, a, a little bit of the uh, specifics that go on in your sport.
3: Sure, um, you know it all, all depends on where you are, but most of the events is what you're going to find is. You're gonna have a, a Braymar stone, which is a 22 pound stone or heavier. And you do this from a standing position. You, you're not allowed to run up. You're not allowed to move your feet. So you basically stand there in the hand of your big rock and you got a piece of wood in front of you called a trig. The trig is, uh, is, you know, four feet by six inches across and, I don't know, 12 to 18 inches tall. I mean, there's specs that, uh, we follow. But, so you got a stone that you stand there and push. It's basically like a standing shot put throw. And then they give you a 16 pound stone or a little bit heavier, and you're allowed to use your your feet. You're allowed to use your spin. You get a seven foot six inch approach. So basically, if you're if you're holding a shot put or a stone in your neck, you have a square or a, excuse me a rectangle box, and you can put one foot in and one foot out. So it's a little bit different than track and field. It's not in a circle. You're in a box, but you're allowed one in and one out at all times, as long as you don't go past the toe board. So you. You throw a 22-pound bryar stone, which is standing, and then you go to a 16-pound open stone, which you can you can use a full spinning technique like a shot footer You can use a South African type technique like a shot putter with one foot out of the box, or you can do a glide, you know, just like your your normal shot foot. So those are your two stone throws for distance, and then you have a 56-pound weight for distance, which is in Scotland is a half hundred weight. They used to use these uh, weights for measuring cattle and grain and things like that. So. We throw a 56-pound weight, which is um, 18 inches long, and it can have a round handle or any any kind of handle as long as the entire thing's not longer than 18 inches long. So that's a 56-foot distance. And then you get a 9-foot run-up. So basically you get the same box, but you get 9 feet to throw it as far as you can, one foot in, one foot out. So you'll throw a 56-foot distance, and then you'll cut that in half into 28-foot distance, which is a quarter hundred weight. So we have all these standard, you know, measurements, and it's all measured on the stone weight, you know. So, you know, the 28 is a two stone weight. So in Scotland, if you're a, you know, a 100 and 140 pound man, they ask you how much you weigh. You say 10 stone, and that's kind of how they get these measurements. Yeah. So after the two weight throws, you get the hammer throw, which is basically a shot put on the end of a stick, a rattan handle, and you dig your feet into the ground using boots, and you swing it around your head, and you release it just like an Olympic hammer throw. Over your, your shoulder. The thing is, you don't get, you don't get to move your feet. So you're basically anchored into the ground, and you swing it around your head using, you know, long arms and your hips and your back, and then you release just like you would a, a Olympic hammer, and that weighs 16 and, and 22 pounds, a heavy and light hammer. Okay. But then you got probably the most famous of all, which is the cabertoss, which is a tree. That's it's usually from 18 feet to 22 feet long, anywhere from 110 to 180 pounds. And the taper on it, if it's bigger at the top, smaller on the bottom, it makes it easier to flip. And you try to flip it end over end. And this is where a lot of people get confused. They're like, well, are you throwing it for distance? Or are you throwing it for accuracy? And basically what you're doing is you're throwing it for accuracy. You have two judges. You have one standing behind you, which is judging on a clock face. So if I pick the taper up and I run and I flip it end over end and the small end lands in front of me, away from me, right in front of me, that would be a 12 o'clock perfect throw. And that's the perfect throw. And then it can fall off, you know, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock. And that would be a lesser throw. Now, if it doesn't turn, the side judge gives you a degree score. So you have a guy running behind you looking for a turn and a guy running by the side looking for a degree score. And he'll give you a degree score, 65 or 70. A turn will always be the degree. And the best degree you can get, of course, is an 89. And if you get a 259, it's going to beat that 89 degree because it was a turn. And then there's a couple other events. The 56 pound weight again, and you're going to throw it for height up over a bar. And mm-hmm. basically, it's a one-handed throw. And there's two styles you can use. A lot of games will say you can use a standing style only, which basically you stand there with one hand. And this has been contested in World's Strongest Man before. You take it, swing it, yeah. you know, yeah. you swing your legs and throw it up over a bar.
2: Right.
1: And
3: nowadays, you can use a kind of a spinning one-turn technique, which is, you know, you know, you can throw it a lot higher but some people can't do it, but that 56-pound weight over the bar is the uh, the name of the event. And then the final event, which isn't really contested in Scotland, which it's mainly just an American event, but it, it, it's kind of a weird, it's called a sheath toss, and it's a 20-pound burlap sacks sack filled with rope that you stick, stick a three-time or a two-time pitchfork in, and you swing it up over a bar for height. So... Oh, that's wow. the nine events, you know, that we throw, nine, ten events that we throw in the Highland Games, and depending on where you are, you can throw seven, or you can throw all of them. So, that's the rundown of every event that you're gonna see, and that's the difference between Scottish Games and Strongman.
1: How much do you weigh?
3: Right now, probably about 260, but when I'm competing and throwing far, I'm around 290. Okay. I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm, I have had two surgeries this year. And right, right. Last year took a lot out of me. I mean, I was training for the World Championships, and I knew with the way that my career was going as a coach and I was moving that last year, everything set up perfectly, and I was training two or three times a day last year, and I'm not paying for it this year.
1: It seems to me, is, is it a long competition day with all those events?
3: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you'll start at, you know, you'll start at around, sometimes you'll start at 9 o'clock. I did a competition in Germany just a few months ago, and I was thrown with twenty-three guys. I started at nine o'clock, and I didn't get done till eight o'clock at night because everybody wow. threw every event. And it's usually not like that, but man, it was uh, it was rough. It was probably the longest competition day I'd ever had in my life, and anything. But you know, it was in Germany, and I had a lot of fun, and everybody was good. So.
2: Wow. Even on the and shorter days that I've been in, it's, you know, it's at least like nine or ten to four. So, I mean, it's still a long day.
3: Um, oh, yeah. And like, you know, sometimes yeah. I'll go to competitions that are spread out over two days yeah. and I'll do five events one day and then we'll go back to the hotel and then we'll come back the next day and do five more events. So, you know, every game is special. Every game's got their own style. Like when I first started at Grandfather Mountain, I knew that if I wasn't on the mountain by seven o'clock and registered by eight and getting ready to throw that i wasn't going to get to compete so and but i'm an early bird so it all worked out
1: you know um bearing in mind the fact that you just said all these you know surgeries that you've had and you've you know recovering from one now and so forth what are what are the most common injuries that um an athlete will experience you think in that sport
3: well in the highland games one of the most common one i've seen is torn biceps um Luckily, I've never had that happen to me, but I know a few guys that have torn their biceps, and probably the most prevalent injury that I've seen has been that. Uh Maybe after that, some back injuries because the stuff is so hard on your body, and you know knees, and that's probably and then torn muscles here and there. I mean, I've I've run the gamut from playing college football and then Highland games, and I've even had a herniated disc in my and so. You know, I would say probably the bicep tears and the muscle tears are probably your most common injury in Highland Games because Mm -hmm. people just don't learn how to throw using their legs and they try to muscle a fifty-six pound weight out or a hammer and they pull in and pop that bicep. You know, it's just you know that's probably the biggest injury I've seen.
1: Well, yeah, because I mean, obviously, I've never competed or trained in this sport, so I'm know nothing about it, but. I I can certainly see the whole idea of moving something that's relatively heavy and trying to look at move it in kind of a whipping motion. That if mm-hmm. you're not if you're not doing it doing it quote unquote correctly, that there 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 certainly could be you know, opportunities to injure yourself for sure. You know you know what else oh. too is
0: your body weight must be a big deal, right? I mean, no wonder you you try to oh. get as heavy oh, as you yeah. can because I think Phil's talked about the whole kind of counterweight idea. You you, you need body mass, right? Oh well,
3: mass moves mass and. And I was always told this in college. I had a great strength coach at the University of Appalachian State, Mike Stone. And um, I don't know if any of the Olympic lifters would they they would they would know Mike Stone as you know as a big time Olympic guy. And he tried to get us to eat everything under the sun because you know it does help. And I tell you what, if right now in two sixty, if I was healthy two sixty and went out and tried to throw the fifty six pound weight, it would throw me around. But at two eighty five, two ninety, I'm in control. So the weight definitely helps. Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah, right. that's exactly what I was telling you guys about before my last competition. It Was you know I walked in and I was two, two seventy five, two eighty, when I moved up yeah. the A class, and I came into my next one at two forty five, yeah. and it was it cool. was it was bad. Yeah. It was yeah.
3: bad. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so um, timing would be different, and you yeah. know, you know, and you can, and that's what I try to explain to people. You know, try to learn how to throw with technique first. Because, you know, I see a lot of strong guys that come out and muscle it. Well, I can learn how to throw throw with a great technique. And then when I add my weight, I can afford to make a few more mistakes in my technique because I am so, so much heavier. So the stronger yeah. I am and yeah. the heavier I am, you know, I don't have to really rely on that technique because I know I can just get there and grind it out. But the lighter I always have that base background where I know, hey, I can always return to my technique and I don't really have to worry about it so much and always hit my numbers.
1: Well, I always, you know, I always say the same thing, and I've seen, even said it on the show before. That, um, you know, in, in powerlifting, my sport, you see guys who, um, you know, will always, you know, it's always the lighter guys that do the, you know, triple body weight, all the quadruple body weight kind of thing, and, you know, they're they're on the scene as these kind of huge, um, you know, uh, shining stars for a year or two, and then you never hear about them again. And I always say it's because when these, you know, these guys are just like you were saying about, you know, uh, being able to. Uh, Being able to afford to make more mistakes when you're heavier and bigger, Um, you know, when these guys are performing at such ridiculous, um, you know, levels at a relatively small body weight, um, I I think you know the propensity of these guys to be injured is just so so much greater. You know, like if you're not built like a Bill Kazmaier kind of guy. You know, and, and you're trying right. to look, you know, at the world level of, you know, heavyweight or super heavyweight poundages. I mean, it really is. I mean, even the big guys eventually are going to get hurt and have to stop. But, you know, if you, if you're, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 pounds lighter than, you know, 300, 350 pounds and you're trying to do these things, it's only a matter of time. Because like you say, I mean, even though you want to be at a, you know, at a technically high level, when you're going, you know, all busting all out, there's always going to be, you know, mechanical problems that are going to have, and have to happen and so forth. And, you know, the every, every little bit that you're lighter and so forth, you can't afford to make those type of mistakes.
3: Yeah, and plus, you know, all the time you got to put in a training to try to get to that level. Eventually, you're going to go out and train one day, and you're going to be tired, and something's going to happen if you're not careful. I mean, there's give and take in all of it. I mean, I'm a big guy, but when it comes to being a strong guy in the Highland Games, you can mark me out, because I'm not one of these guys that go in and grind out Six, seven, eight hundred pound deadlifts because I've never been, I've never coached to do that kind of stuff and I'm not built for it. You know, I'm, I was, I'm built for kind of speed and technique, you know, but I know guys that aren't. I know guys that, you know, they have to go in and deadlift 700 pound, you know, and all this stuff and that's just not my style and my body couldn't handle it and I know that and people will talk to me about, well, what do you lift? And I'm like, you really don't want to ask me that because you'll think I'm an idiot because I'm not extremely strong, but I just know how to throw things. I've, over the years, I've developed my own technique, and I know that. You know, I've told people, I like listen. I've come out of winter's training in April and thrown 90 plus in the in the 28. And I said, then in September, when I'm weak and tired and beat up from the season, I still have the ability to throw that weight. That way, I know I don't have to depend on these big, strong lifts to get me through because it's always going to come back down to technique. If you know, if you don't have that strength background.
0: Well, not to sound insulting to Phil at all, but Phil, I'm guessing your strategy is kind of the opposite.
2: <laughs> no, and no, actually, my strategy now, though, I mean, <laughs> the only reason I made it to the A class is because I'm stupid strong, and you know, I was. That's kind of yeah,
0: right. That's what I'm saying, right? Because yeah, if, if you you're not a paragon of skill. You're, no. <laughs> you're gonna yeah. Like your 800 pound pole deadlift.
2: <laughs> and you know, I was dealing. I was lucky enough to be friends with John Godina and a bunch of uh, you know track and field guys, and then a bunch of the Highland Games pros in in Arizona. And, you know, I was down to my last throw of the competition where I made the A-class, and I was like, hey, just just use your muscle. Just toss it. And that's what got me there. But now I know I'm not going to go pro unless I get good. Um right. You know, strength can get you to A-class. Just strength isn't taking you pro.
0: Well, I don't know if uh, it's very <laughs> analogous, but, you know, like, obviously Highland Games sounds like it's an awful lot of throws. But I, I remember being sort of hacked off when I was in high school as, I was much stronger than some of the guys on the baseball team, and they could throw baseballs much faster and much farther than I could. And I'm like, okay, so clearly skill is a big deal here. You
1: know what I mean? You know, we also look at things like, I remember I knew this uh, kid that was a a champion here in Canada of arm wrestling. And this guy was a beanpole. I remember the guy almost took my arm right through the table. Wow. And And I remember thinking to myself the same kind of thing. I'm thinking the exact same thing. I'm like, you know no put down this kid but clearly skill has a lot to do with this i mean and when i actually talked to him he was the same way it's like well yeah don't don't let this hurt your ego because you know contrary to what a lot of people think it's just not a, a meathead sport where you're just grabbing somebody's hand and yanking on it it's there is technique
0: involved so yeah you have like, a big engine but if you can't direct it where you want it to go and do what you want then i suppose it's sort of wasted power
1: you know exactly exactly so i and I, so like what phil said i mean you know um just skill can get, get you so far, just muscle mass and strength can get you so far, but if you really want to get to, you know, the elite level of anything, I, obviously you have to, you know, blend those two things together.
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah I tell you, I, I coach shot putters and I, the guy who was our head coach was a cross country runner and he would look at people in a different light than I would. He'd see these big, huge guys and say, well, you should make him a thrower. I said, well, his IQ is like 12. I said, you got to be kind of intelligent your brain knows when to fire which thing. And, and you know, John, I've, I've met John Godina, I've met Amy, Adam Nelson and Reese Hoffa, and these guys are pretty intelligent guys, and it takes a lot to really understand, just in shot put, what needs to happen to make that thing go far and when it needs to happen. And, you know, there's a whole lot more to every sporting event in life than just being some big damn animal. There are some good things about being a big animal. I mean, <laughs> that a lot to you. It gets you out of a lot of problems, but some of these technical events, and especially like the discus, if you look at discus throwers, they're not big guys. I tell you what, they are—they're big, 230 hundred and thirty-pound guys with levers that
0: are unbelievable. Yeah, lever arm.
3: Yeah. And you know, and just like probably the person throwing the baseball, because you were so strong, you might not have been as flexible, so your lever was a lot shorter than that. You know, that this weakling guy that could just sling you. You know, a lot of goes into
0: this stuff. Okay, yeah, well, and it's, um, I, I was just going to yeah. uh, say, I, I know we got to take a break in, in a second, but Phil, go ahead. I, I have one question to ask before we start talking about, you know, how to lift for this stuff.
2: No, and I was just going to say, I mean, it's always seemed to me that the harder, at, at my level where I'm at, the harder I try and try to use my strength, a lot of times it's the worse I throw. It, it's yeah. this weird oh, yeah. dichotomy of relaxation and, and just... Uh, you know, hitting it right. It's, it's usually the easiest throws are the ones that go the furthest. Um,
3: yeah, it, well, i tell you, I, when I, when I was a few years into my career, and I would watch these guys come out, and a lot of them had strongmen background. And they would come out and do the smell and sauce and uh, slapping and, uh, and this and that, <laughs> and you could just see them. You could just see them tightening up. Yeah. And I'm just sitting back there in my chair watching them, and I'm like, you know what, they're trying to throw three feet further if he just relaxed. And you know what? A lot of them stuck around with it, and you'll see them as they start getting more into the sport. You'll see them. Things start calming down a little bit because when you get so excited, when you get so fired up, things tighten up. I mean, it's just the way it is because you're just trying to, I'm going to throw this thing so far. All of a sudden, your bicep pulls in a little bit and things go a little bit shorter, and you think you had a pretty decent throw, and then you realize, man, if I'd just relaxed, I'd have gone four feet further. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's a learning curve. Everybody yeah. does it you know everybody thinks you gotta go harder and go farther
0: and it's not really true I think that's true across so many sports last week in kendo practice you know this is something very different but I'm chopping you know and I'm constantly reminding myself you know this is more like casting uh, a fishing line you know what I mean when, when you're uh-huh. it's Japanese fencing right and it's it's I do have that propensity I hate to sound like I'm filling that stereotype but I he, the the instructors like Big guns, relax, you know, and, and that's <laughs> yeah. kind of, and that's, and I'm actually trying to do that and I have to remind myself to do that. I, I think whether you're in powerlifting, bodybuilding, whatever it is, you are used to sort of going ballistic, like you said, kind of the smelling salts thing, and you've almost yep. got to teach your muscles, hey, yep. you know, relax, you know, fire when I want you to and not all the time. So. Exactly. Yeah. Hey, I had one question before we go to break here is, and this is just switching gears a little bit, but it seems like Strongman and Highland Games are, you know, these things are really increasing in popularity compared to bodybuilding and powerlifting and some of the traditional, you know, strength and muscle sports. And I just wanted to get your perspective on that. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that Highland yeah. Games, or do you think it's actually getting more popular?
3: Well, I do. I tell you, um, you know, when I first started throwing, I look at some of the numbers that, would have won competitions, and basically they're being thrown by amateur A guys and not even the top guys. I'm talking about even some of the guys who are just now A's. And it's because the Internet has become so lambasted with all this information. I mean, I remember when I first started throwing, I couldn't go type on the Internet and say, how do I throw a 56-pound weight for distance? And then YouTube, and 1,000 clips would pop up of some of the best throwers ever that have ever thrown these things. Um, another reason why I think Highland Games are growing as far as the competitions go is because I think people enjoy the atmosphere of Highland Games. Um, I can't tell you how many powerlifters I've heard that have said, I'm done powerlifting because I'm tired of the guys who are just jerks in the powerlifting field. You know, you go there and, you, you know, you, you, maybe you lift a couple lifts and nobody talks to each other and everybody's in their own world. Now, I'm not a powerlifter. I don't know if it's true. I'm just saying what I've heard from powerlifters, but they love the family atmosphere, they love the all day competition, they love the treatment, you know, and it's just a whole lot more enjoyable for someone, I think, to enjoy it there at the Highland Games and then maybe go to a powerlifting competition where maybe everybody's on the edge and smelling soft and going crazy. Well, and I, I think, think that might be why yeah. people like Highland Games.
1: Well, I think what you're saying now is almost, and Phil can chime in on this, I guess, I, the atmosphere that you're putting the Highland Games to me is is kind of how I think that powerlifting was 10, 15 years ago, you know, and I think yeah. how bodybuilding probably was twenty or thirty years ago. The camaraderie, yeah. yeah, because because that you know like people are always talking about bodybuilding about that, right? What was different, you know? Because even in in you know my earliest days in the eighties of being a bodybuilder, you know, I, I recognized that there was a difference in the you know like like Lonnie's saying that um, you know that the relationship with between people in the gym and even backstage at competitions, and then you know, like I said, one of the, the enticing things about powerlifting for me when I made that switch to that was that kind of family buddy kind of thing backstage, you know, kind of thing. But I, even that now, I I, I see is now changing a little bit because as, as so I, I think you know when when a sports at that you know that level where it's really taken off, but it's still you know at that really organic level, I think that's where you find that and you know, hopefully the Highland Games will, you know, retain that because I can see how that would be a, a very, uh, you know, major attraction for that.
0: Do you think, but, do, I hate to sound cliche, but do you think it's the, like, the flowing Guinness or the beer that helps with all this? I don't know, I'm just wondering. Well,
3: I think, I think what you'll find out is you'll have guys that compete in the Highland Games that come out and have a good time. And, you know, they don't really care about how they throw. Maybe they do on a certain level. And they're there to have a good time. And then, you know, to jump on the whole thing of the camaraderie, that guy's going to have just as much fun as me and seven other pros. Because we're trying to beat each other. We're trying to win as much money as we can. But as soon as that competition's over, we're going to all go out and eat together. Um, we're We're going to say, hey, this game's near my house. Why don't you fly here? I'll pick you up. And you stay at my house to save you some money. And we take care of each other because we're all in this together. Nobody's getting rich. But we all enjoy each other. And I think over the last few years, you know, you're saying that maybe you're powerlifting and your bodybuilding is regressing. I think in games are kind of coming into even a better era of that, of guys taking care of each other, of guys helping each other out. Because I know before I turned pro, I heard some stories about some pros not getting along, not speaking with each other. And that's not like that now anymore. Every amateur, every pro that's throwing nowadays, especially in America, was an amateur at one time. And we all helped each other out. And I think it's it's probably come tenfold since I started competing on how much fun everybody has together.
2: Well, I think the crowd helps too. Um, you're you're in a more fair type of atmosphere. You don't get that at, at say powerlifting, Olympic lifting meets. Um, that helps us as, as as an athlete. I mean, it's neat having people sit there. They have no idea what's going on when you've got a caber up, but it's it's pretty cool to hear them yell and and, and whatnot. And, um, Oh, yeah, and I guess,
3: I mean, some, some powerlifting meets are probably done in hotels or something, and it's a closed room or something. I mean, I yeah, seen the exactly. DVD, But, you know, the Highland Games, I mean, I've been in front of 20,000 people, and it's just an unbelievable experience. Yeah.
1: yeah. Okay. Well, there's definitely, there's something definitely probably to that whole idea that like you're saying you're outside amongst, you know, like in the nature and stuff, kind of, again, more than, you know, a powerlifting or. Whatever, where you you know you are in a gymnasium or something like that. So well, I think that's a good point, Rob. You have yeah, the outdoor thing. Yeah, yeah. So it probably kind of breeds a little bit more of a sense of you know the kind of the, sporting the, event. It's a picnic kind of thing. It's an event, you know, like yeah. you go. Yeah. It's like when you go to a family vacation or a family reunion, you know, and you're you're in a park and everybody's you know playing games, playing baseball, having hot dogs and stuff. You know, it's kind of more of a you know an atmosphere that probably breeds a little bit more of you know a, a sense of kind of family and friends and. That kind of thing, right? Cheering. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. How prevalent, just one more question, how prevalent are, are drugs of any type in, in the sport?
3: Um, I'm sure they're there. I've been tested. At, I think every world championships I've competed at and finished in the top three, I've been tested. Um, I'm sure they're out there. Uh, I don't think you see them on a grand scale. Um, so they're, they're probably there. But I know I I compete in games where you get tested, and I've been like I said I've been tested five yeah. or six times uh, in Scotland. Now the SGA, the Scottish Games Association over there, they they conduct random tests. Um, you can go to games where you know there's not going to be any testing, and I'm sure people do and just not worry about it. Um, to me, to take drugs in the Highland Games to make. You know, in some of my best years, I've made a little over forty thousand bucks. It's not worth it to me. You know, if I was an NFL player making two million dollars, and my grandkids wouldn't have to worry about working, it might be a different story. But you know, you know, to make a few thousand bucks here and there, you know, I I don't really know if it's worth it. Well,
1: I I would, I would think again, not being an expert at all, but I would think that of the strength kind of sports, you know, in the round, that would probably be the one the least likely to you know have athletes um abusing that i would just think because what, what we're talking about of things like you want to be loose you want to be relaxed you want you know what i mean and in a lot of ways that would run you know in opposition to a lot of the effects that you might get from certain you know, i think yeah
0: arguably it's it's more of a, a sport you know we were talking about whether bodybuilding yeah. was a sport which is highly debatable really and powerlifting is but again sort of controlled by comparison yeah of this course, seems like yeah. more like like we were saying it's a it's a sport in the truest sense. Well, I mean, and think about even, even the skill right? component and all that, you know.
1: Well, what do you always hear in powerlifting, right? Stay tight, 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 tight. Yeah. And right. you know, what, you, what Larry's, you know, describing is anything but you want, you want to be kind of loosey goosey, right? Yeah. So, so just Isn't that. Yeah, yeah,
2: that's, that right there has been my hardest part making well, the transition.
1: and I can see why <laughs> that would be difficult because like, I'm sure if I tried to make the switch too, that would be the, the biggest thing that would be different for me too is that the whole idea of you know because that's all i ever think about is stay hard stay tight stay tight you know and and all of a sudden it's like you got to throw it out the window and now okay now be loosey-goosey right
0: so yeah okay guys listen uh i'm gonna insist (laughs) we let's squeeze squeeze in a couple of uh announcements here and then when we come back from the break we'll talk uh at least for a few minutes about you know specific lifts for uh for highland games Hey, IronRadio.org listeners, this is Lonnie Lowry, and I'm just bringing you a sneak peek only for Iron Radio listeners at this point. If you Google CRC Press, Lowry, L-O-W-E-R-Y, and protein, you can be some of the first people on the planet to see this book. It's specifically for strength athletes, everything on the safety of high-protein diets, the efficacy, the dosing, the types practical applications and case studies. This is a textbook. It's not what I would call an industry book. This is not pseudoscience. This is the the state-of-the-art science. And if someone wants to critique you on your extra protein intake, this will be something you can hold up and say, this is what the literature says about stressed kidneys or bone loss or gout or dehydration or increased muscle mass over time or leanness or what types are best. This is the ultimate source in one place. Little disclosure here, I do make a single-digit percentage of royalties on this book. It's such a low amount, however. Obviously, I haven't done it for that purpose. I did it because, like you, I want to have something I can hold up in one place that's modern literature instead of what perhaps a health educator might tell you about the benefits and the potential concerns, if there are any, on ample protein diets specific to a population like ours. Thank you. Hello
2: everybody, Phil Stevens here for IronRadio.org, StrengthGuild.com, and ChadAggs.com to tell you about the Strength Refined Seminar with myself, Phil Stevens, and Chad Aix. Saturday, September 24th, 2011, CrossFit Sin City, Las Vegas, Nevada. Strength Refined is a one-day course on refining your technique and proficiency in the squat, the bench, and the deadlift. It's going to be a long day. We'll squat, we'll bench, we'll deadlift, we'll do a Q&A, and then we're going to go heavy and go eat. For more information, go to www.strengthguild.com, click on the blog, go to Meets and Seminars, click on the Strength Refined Seminar, and it's all there. Hope to see you
3: there.
2: Okay, um, we're back now, and again, we're with Larry Brock, Jr. He's the uh, last year's 2010 IHGF World Champion um, in the Highland Games. So um, what we want to talk about today is kind of... Um, you know, maybe briefly touch on your training yourself coming up to the to the championship, and, and uh, you don't have to let go of all your secrets, but maybe just kind of a basic outline of what you were doing, and then I've got a couple listener questions we can touch on real quick.
3: Okay, sure. Um, I tell you, I try to conduct um, even now. You know, before the World Championships, I was lifting, especially during the winter, four days a week, and I would break it up into Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, and What I try to do is I squat on Monday, and I I squat and bench on Monday. Those are my main things. But along with squatting, I do a lot of single leg exercises. I do a lot of lunges. I do um, step ups. I do some, you know, more. I do a ton of leg stuff. And I think people in the Highland Games, you know, a lot of people like to bench press, and it's really, really, you know, not very good for what they need to be doing. Single leg stuff on Mondays and squats. So basically my Monday is squat and bench with a lot of extra stuff added in. Tuesday is my Olympic day and I'll do, I'll do overhead squats. I'll do, um, pulls from the floor, which are more of an explosive pull, you know, similar to I guess what a deadlift would be, except I try to jump off the ground with it and shrug my shoulders real hard. And, and Tuesday is my Olympic pull day, my clean day, my hang clean day. I do a lot of that. And Wednesday is usually a day of rest because after those two days, I'm pretty beat up, and I'll I'll do some throwing also. And then I come back Thursday with a front squat and an incline day, and I do a lot more single leg stuff. And then I take a break on Friday and Saturday is my match day, and I will do a lot of Olympic pulls again. And and I tell you, if I get to if I get to Saturday and I feel like like I can't do it, I just don't do it. I I listen to my body, especially as I'm getting a little bit older now. You know, I don't go in and grind away or if I lift Monday and I feel like garbage on Tuesday, I, I lighten it down and I try to stay smart. But that's basically what I do in the off season, is a four day week of lifting, and then as the season gets closer, I'll bump that down to three. And then as the season, and I, what I mean by the season is like April, April to November, uh, April to October, I'll try to gauge my lifting on competitions. I mean there was a time when I was doing 15 weekends in a row, and what I would do is I'd try to lift once or twice during that week but it wouldn't be heavy it'd be like a three set of five on squats and maybe with of bench and some power cleans and that's it just something to say i did something so my mind thinks that i'm still lifting and you know and just to keep my body in motion and during that time i do a lot of stretching but as far as practicing goes i you know i would throw a lot early but then when i start throwing every weekend i really don't throw much and just over the time I've learned how to throw and I've been drained in my body and I think I need to work on something. I'll jump out there and work on it. But I mean, man, I'm in North Carolina. It's hot. It's, it's hundred degrees <laughs> today. And I am not going out and practicing because let me tell you, at nine o'clock at night it's eighty and at eight o'clock in the morning it's ninety as well. And I ain't doing it. i am go in my garage and do some footwork drills, but it's hot, man. And I just, you know, I used to get out there and drive and then I'd get out there for three hours and I'd throw every event and then i i not uh, it. I can practice from about February to April, but then it starts getting too hot and I just rely on my games and my, you know, my seasoned years, I guess you could
1: say. You know, it, it, that, that's so true. Like, I guess it was last Thursday. It was so, like the hottest day ever that we've ever had here in Toronto. And, you know, and generally, I, I mean, I'm a winter guy. I like winter the best, but oh, I, like I, I don't have any problem usually training the summer. Um, it doesn't, you know, even though I don't enjoy it, it doesn't really Negatively affect me, but last Thursday it was so damn hot and so damn humid that literally for the probably the first time in twenty six years of training, I went into squat and I absolutely, without question, noticed a, a decrease in my performance strictly because of how suffocating the air was. Um, so, I, I, I when, when, when you're saying about like you know that kind of heat that you're talking about, hundred degrees. Um, I, I totally know what you're talking about with that.
0: Hey this brings a a, a question to my mind is is there a a season then or yeah. is this a year round kind of endeavor uh, or how does how does that work?
3: Well I can tell you you know you know a basic season for me I always look at it is about April like I said to October maybe early November. Um, now I can compete January 1st every year January 1st in Waikou, New Zealand because they have this first game every year in New Zealand. I've never been, of course, but even if I were to go, I would kind of make that just a vacation. Phoenix has a game in February, and, but, you know, it's still early. There's still a lot of lifting going on. I mean, when you're competing more or less April to November, you know, have, you know December, is, you know, I always take time off. And, and honestly, I still hunting. I go hunting all the time, and it's my time off away from highland games. And so, you know, jump back on the horse, you know, late December or January, and then you're right back competing. So I would say I try to look at my season from April when I was competing, you know, because I, I just took over as head football coach so I was kind of cutting my games down in the fall. But I did that for longevity purposes. Um, but, you know, a season when I was really getting after it the last few years was April to November.
1: I also, Larry, you also um, were talking about, you know, your – Train program and your Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday thing. And I mean, you were doing a lot of squatting. Um, what yeah. kind of low, what kind of, what, what, yeah, exactly. What kind of percentage loads, um, are, are you generally speaking hitting in, in, in any of these, if, um, you know, train days?
3: Well, like I, said, I I break it down in kind of like three weeks and this might be old and antiquated, but it's something that I found, you know, kind of works for me. And I do the first three weeks, man, I get in there and I'll do three to five sets of ten at, Say 60%, and you know that's a ton of reps. And I do that for three weeks, and then I'll jump down to uh, you know a couple of weeks of well, two or three weeks of six to eight reps. Yeah. And that'll bump up to you know 65, 75%, and then I'll jump into my five by five, and that starts to really get you know pounding. And then I'll do the last couple to three weeks of ten, eight, six, four, two, one and basically working up to a good number. And 10, you know, my 10 kind of a warm-up at around 55%, and then I'll try to end up somewhere. You know, I, I could tell you, that I haven't maxed in ages because, you know, maxing out for me is not really something that I worry about because I think more injuries occur for me when I try to do stuff like that. So I guess if I was working off of a, you know, an Olympic parallel squat max of 550, you know, those are my percentages, man. Like I could tell you, I... I don't go in there and pound away with 500 pound squats or nothing. I can't. I'm just
1: not built for that. But you um, know what? It's interesting because what exactly what you're saying, um, certainly in the earlier parts of the, the, that training period, uh, it, it's, and Lonnie was probably laughing too because those, those are very conducive towards increasing body weight muscularly.
0: Yeah. Hypertrophy. Yeah.
1: Exactly. So, I mean, it stands to reason then that, you know, a guy at, you know, at your level of, you know, elite uh, ability in the sport, you know, you just through, like, like you know, uh, form becomes function, right? I mean, you're just eventually yeah. become, I mean, if you start off as a reasonably, you know, strong guy, 200, you know, pounds, 220 pounds, it really doesn't surprise me then that, you know, several years down the line, 10 years down the line, with, through that kind of training, you know, you, yeah, you could get some, you know, some beastly dudes, 280, 300 pound guys, you know? Well,
3: see, like, I yeah, have to tell you, when I was a senior in high school, I weighed 320 pounds. Um, and then I started, when well, I, I, mean, I was a big cat, man, but I could still run. That was the big thing, and you know, I went yeah. to Appalachian. My, my playing weight at app was probably between 280 and 290. But I can tell you, man, if I stop lifting, like right now, man, I haven't lifted a weight in a month and a half because of my injuries in my shoulder, and I'm down to, I'm probably right now below 260 pounds. When I stop lifting, I lose weight. I mean, I lose huge weight. If I ever stopped lifting and started, I might be a marathon runner, <laughs> because I'm going to say, you know, I, can, I, can, I can drop some weight in the heartbeat, yeah. a heartbeat, except I love ice cream at night, and that really kicks my tail every night. Yeah. I've got to have ice cream, man. But you know, man, um, I, I think, you know, everybody's always trying to find that secret list, um, the different things, man. And yeah. my philosophy is, is more along the lines of a growing philosophy. I, I'll even, I've got a video of a guy, Warner Gunther, who was an unbelievable shot that back in the day. And he was taking like 135 and 225 and putting it on the squat bar, and he was doing counts like he would go down very slow. You know, he'd hit a parallel, come up halfway, and hold it for like a five count and then explode up. And I started doing those a couple years back, man, and, and I was amazed at how hard even 135, you know, counting down five, four, yeah, three. Yeah, it, yeah. And coming halfway back up and just holding that position. But see, in the Highland games, you know, you're never really getting into a full squat position. But you know you're getting that kind of half squat, and that's where I'd get there and hold it. And I'm telling you that 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 helped me more than anything throwing-wise was getting my hips and my quads stronger in that position. And it wasn't a lot of weight. I mean, it was I'm talking about nothing. You know, compared to strong people, I'm not strong. And that's this leads into one of the questions. Um, if you had to choose for a Highland Games athlete, heavy movements or speed movements? I mean. A speed by far, I think you got to have a, a, a time and place for the big weights. I don't, I don't think, I'm not sitting here to tell you, you can't, you, you, you don't need to do any of them. But I would say uh, 75% of your speed, speed movement and that 25%, you know, some grinding out. And, you know, a lot of times, and I mean, it might sound stupid, but I think a lot of times the grinding the weights mentally might make you feel better because you think you're accomplishing something. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I know some guys that, You know, just because they they think they're stronger, you know, the mind's a crazy thing, and just because they think they're stronger, they can go out and throw just a little bit further. I mean, but you know, I think there's a time and place for it, but definitely not. I mean, I I did 40 games one year, and there's a time and place for just laying in the hot tub and and praying you're going to make it to the next competition too. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, I guess the next big question we got—we got two two new people. And they were wondering, um, one gal that's going to do a games in October in New Mexico and then another gentleman that's going to do his first games, they neither of them have the equipment. What would you yeah. suggest training-wise that they do to try to walk well, into their I, first games?
3: Okay, well, the easiest thing is, is make the equipment. Um, I made it. it I, I, I'm, I'm probably the cheapest person you ever meet. Um, <laughs> I made my first set of weights. What I did was I got a Folgers coffee can. I went down to the local tire store, and I said, hey, um, you got any leftover tire weights when you take them off the tires? And they'd have buckets full of these things, man. And you can get them. Sometimes I just give them to you. And what I did was I got a big pot, and I heated it up, and I melted. I, I weighed out about 60 pounds of those tire weights. And because they got these little metal clips on I, I melted them down, and I poured it into a coffee can. And I had a chain that I used, and I sunk down inside the lead. I mean, it's dangerous now. Don't get me wrong. But if you're as cheap as I was, then, heck, you know, it worked perfect. So, And then you go down to your local welding store and say, hey, I need you to weld me a three-quarters-inch steel round handle. And they'll do it for like $8. So, I mean, you know, you can make that. Um, As far as making a hammer, I made a hammer out of a a piece of chain and a PVC. I took a piece of chain, and I put a quick link on the end of it, and I ran it down a piece of like a a foot-and-a-half piece of PVC, three-quarters-inch pipe. And I took the chain down. A little, you know, probably 60 inches of a small thin chain. I put another quick link on the end of that, and then I ran it through some of those small Walmart weightlifting plates, you know, the small diameter. Uh, and I made a hammer out of that, um, a stone. Hey, just go take one out of the river or go to a landscaping store, and you can buy them. They sell them to you by the pound. Um, you know, other than that, I mean, go cut down a tree, because I went and cut down a tree out in the woods and just made a caber. And I made a small one just so I could pick it up and, and walk with it. Now, you know, the sheaf, if you're going to throw the sheaf, you know, you're going to get a little bit more of some problems there because you've got to have the pitchfork. you got to have the – that's one that you're going to have to either figure out how to make or you can buy one off the Internet. But this stuff can be made so much cheaper. I mean, now there's some good quality weights out there. I mean, the old scout guy out of Maryland is making great weights. Um, Bobby Dodd out of Kelso, Washington, he makes, uh, you know, heavy gear. But, you know, you're talking about $200 for one weight. And then, you know, that's, you know, with shipping and then maybe a little bit more shipping. I mean, you know, to me, you know, being as cheap as I was, I figured out how to do it until I figured out, hey, I'm in this for the long haul, and then I just went ahead and and, and bought weight. And the trick, yeah. you know, the tow board isn't nothing. You just get some – you can go get you one of those big, you know, landscape timbers and chop it up and drill a couple of big holes in it, and there you got your tow board. So, yeah. I mean, you, you know – those people that are new to it, I wouldn't say don't get too involved until you figure out if you're going to make it a lifestyle. If you really find out that this is something you want to do, because you can drop, say, a thousand bucks and and then stuck yeah. with it. Of course, you can always resell it because there's somebody wanting to buy. It. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean,
2: I, I'd add just don't worry about go out and have fun. Don't worry about looking a fool. You know, I've seen eighty percent of C class <laughs> people that come in the first time they fall down on every fifty six
3: pound throw. <laughs> hey, I, I threw, I threw the 50, I've got it on video, man. I threw the 56 pound weight, 12 feet in my first competition. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I mean, and, and, I mean, that's the thing is everybody out there, you know, and here's the thing, the good thing about those new guys is if they're throwing on class with professionals or they're throwing on the on the same, you know, on a field with professionals or, or the, just don't talk to those guys. Everybody's good, everybody's good and everybody will answer every question you know, if you come out there and you're a jerk, you won't be in this sport very long because people will shine away from you. But the biggest thing is, every. And I remember my first few competitions after I started getting into it, I learned about Ryan Vieira, and, and I've been, oh, there's Ryan Vieira, five-time world champion, and then two years later, I'm traveling around Scotland with him for a month, and I mean, that's the thing, it's just everybody is really good, everybody's willing to help out, and... Don't worry about how stupid you look because I look just as dumb when when I first started.
1: Yeah. Well, no, that's and that you know that's that's such a wonderful you know environment to to you know be in because you know it's when you're you know when people are accepting of you because they see that you're trying. Um, I've always said the same thing, but in gyms, right? Like I've always said that. um, I'm sure everybody here on the show here can can say the same thing. I much prefer to see some guy in the gym who really is working hard. With, you know, 135 on the bench press, then, you know, then that jerk that's standing over in the corner with, you know, three plates on and he's being a jerk to everybody and walking around like he's the, you know, the shit and everything like that. It's, you know, it's very off-putting, you know, so, you know, I I think,
3: you know, when it comes to that kind of stuff, like lifting in a gym, I, I, I don't like going to the gym and I I put it this way. Because I and you get the same exact thing that you're saying. I look at guys over there trying to squat 600 pounds and they're doing a quarter squat, <laughs> and they're fired up. And I'm over there doing 315, but my ass is going to the floor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and you know, and then you got the guy
0: curling in the squat rack.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: you know, so you're, you
0: – nobody likes that guy. No, that's true. That's like a cliche now. <laughs> you know what, Larry?
1: You're totally Iron Radio approved.
0: He is. Yep. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
3: <laughs> Well, i tell you, I, you know, I used to have the, I used to go to the gym and, and my wife was, she worked at Gold for a little while in Charlotte before we started having kids and she worked at daycare and the front desk and, and then I just got to where I did not like going in there. Um, I just, I had it, I almost got into it with a guy who was training a bunch of kids and he was training them wrong. And see, I'm a high school coach and I, I saw what he was doing to the kids and I, I confronted him and told him that these kids need to be doing something else besides what you're doing because what you're doing is wrong. And um, and I just I just realized real fast that my garage was the best place for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: That's good stuff. Um, we better get ready to wrap it up here because now we're under time constraints. Now that we're syndicated. So um, <laughs> any other things? What do you got coming up competitively? Then you're just resting up. When are you hoping to be back out there?
3: I'm done for this. I I really do. I I need to take some time off. I'm I'm coaching my football team, and I'm going to be done. I'm going to start training again whenever the doctor says I'm cleared. I mean, I'm I'm still sleeping in a recliner, man. I'm still in a lot of pain, and it's it's, it's been four weeks to date since I've had this surgery. So I'm taking some time off. I will start back um, maybe next year, go out to Phoenix early and compete all the way through. Some maybe in July. I'll be back, man. Um, You know, I got... I got. I've had so much fun in the games. I've been blessed. I've had great wife and great family and great support. And my in-laws are just been terrific, helping us with our kids. And you know, I've had a great career. It's not over yet. But um, you know, I, I, I'd probably say I'm, I'm on the down slope of it. I've I, I burned the candle at both ends for a long time, and I've been awful fortunate, and I've had some good sponsors too. So um, you know, I've been awful lucky.
2: And if you get some lucky people like me, Larry will be your announcer at your games. He gets pretty animated. Um, I have no clue how you remember everybody's name. By the end of the day, you knew them all. But, uh.
3: Well, still, I'm <laughs> going to tell you what, man. I've been, to, I've been to a lot of Highland games. And every time someone asks me at a competition, what's one of the most important things about the, Highland, the, the Scottish heritage? I say, you need to have a good on-field announcer. Yeah. And because i tell you what I did. I sat there and, and I tried to look at every time someone threw, I looked at the sheet. And by halfway through the day, I was like, okay, I got – and you're talking about I mean, there was a lot of throws there. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's just something that I take pride in because I want someone who's announcing for me to take pride in their job. And, you know, in everything – my dad always told me, everything you do, you do it to the best of your ability. And so that's why I try to make sure that every athlete out there feels special, even when they're competing, even from the C-class to the Masters. It doesn't matter. Everybody deserves their shape.
1: Well, go. I can definitely tell that your sport is advantaged by having you a part of it, man, yeah. so hats off to you. Man,
2: I appreciate
3: it. Yep. Thanks a lot for joining us. Yes, um, thank you. Hey, guys, thank you guys for having me. You yeah. guys call me anytime. You ever need anything. There
2: you go. Good luck on the recovery, and uh, maybe we'll see you on the field in February.
3: <laughs> I'll be there, hopefully. Yep. Thanks a lot, guys.